Welcome to the Revolution of Tenderness podcast with your hosts, Joshua Stancil and Simone Riscala. All right, welcome everyone. Our guest this week is uh, Suzanne M. Wolf. When Simone and I were talking about who our first guest should be, there really was no, really no discussion. Um, there was really only one person that we wanted. Um, I met Suzanne a couple of years ago with the Convivium Literary Conference. She is the acclaimed author of four novels. Unveiling was published in 2004 uh, to, to great acclaim. Annie Dillard, no less, Annie Dillard said that unveiling, quote, probes the myriad layers of meaning in art, the human soul, and ultimately the world itself. Not too shabby, getting a blurb from Annie Dillard. She followed that up in 2016 with The Confessions of X, which won Christianity Today's Book of the Year. And then most recently, she's the author of um, a series of, uh, of novels set in the Elizabethan era, uh, murder mysteries centering around an aristocratic spy named Nicholas Holt. Uh, the New York Public Library just um, named their 30 historical mystery series to get you through any crisis, and they named Suzanne's <laughs> series to that list. Again, not too shabby. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, your most recent novel has just been out uh, a few months, The Course of All mm -hmm. Treasons. It's the second in a series set in the, the Elizabethan era. Uh, tell us what uh, you know, what inspired you to to write this? Well, um, I love the Elizabethan era. I've always loved it. When I was at school uh, in England, my favorite historical period was the Tudor period. And of course, Elizabeth I is Henry VIII's daughter, uh, second daughter, Elizabeth Tudor. Um, so it is the the Tudor period ends with her reign in 1603. Um, so I loved it. I was fascinated, of course, by Henry VIII and his wives and uh, Elizabeth I. And living in England, it allowed me to go to uh, actual places where they'd lived. So, for example, Hever Castle, I visited as a teenager. Uh, and that was where Anne Boleyn was raised, uh, the mother of Elizabeth I. So, um, and actually, uh, on a side note, it's really tiny, by the way. It's not huge. as You think of a big castle, but it's actually a tiny castle. Um, so it's a, like a manor house pretending to be a castle. So, uh, you know, and I just found that absolutely fascinating. I loved history. Um, I remember um, seeing a um, engraving on a, on a window, a mullioned window in a, uh, a medieval manor house uh, in the north of England. And it was, um, it was like a, a sort of little poetic lament, uh, a, a lament about boredom, being really bored. And then there was a little plaque next to it that said that this had been written by such and such a, an earl when he was about 15. And it was scratched on the window with a diamond ring and it had the date and it was the 15th century sometime. And I just felt this sort of shiver of connection, you know, that there was there was a 15 year old teenager who was bored 
probably because it was raining, because it was England, <laughs> looking through the window and decided to, to graffiti, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so I decided I wanted to read history at Oxford. And I actually got accepted to Trinity College. Um, but then right after that, I decided to switch to English literature. So then I did that and I went to a different college, Mansfield College. Um, and But it seems that in every novel that I've written, unveiling the Confessions of X, a murder by any name, and also the current one, uh, The Course of All Treasons, my, my love of literature, my love of history, these two tributaries have, have merged. I never intended that. Mm. Um, you know, Unveiling is a contemporary novel, but there's a lot about the past in it. I mean, if you're going to learn history, literature is a fantastic way to do that and, and a more interesting way to do that sometimes. History well, can often, history is so interesting, but so many people are bored by it because they they don't they don't know the story behind it. Whereas in literature, you get the story and you can right. learn history. Well, I mean, it, yeah, history is about usually it's just about what people do, you know, because we can't know their minds. We can't go into. We can infer a little bit. But we we can only judge them by what they do, what treaty they sign or battle or marriage or those things. Um, whereas historical fiction allows you to go inside the character and we learn about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what their motivations are for what they do. And so historical fiction means that, in a sense, I have to, to begin at what has been done because it's historical record. But then I go back and I fictionalize the motivations, um, you know, personal motivations. And that's how, that's one of the ways to marry fiction and, and history. I wanted to ask you that one of my um, one of my favorite writers, as you know, is James Elroy. Yes, and he writes these really gritty, hard boiled um, kind of noirish uh, novels. Yeah, um, and he is very famously disdainful of the contemporary world. He writes nothing that is set now. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't have a cell phone. Doesn't have a computer. He writes all his novels longhand. Pays someone to type them up. Um, he simply has no interest in now. So he sets everything, you know, in the decades past. Now, I would assume your interest in setting things in the past has nothing to do with any antagonism towards <laughs> the present. But when you, if you're, when you're inspired to write something, is it, oh, <laughs> or am I wrong? Is it anti antagonism towards the present? Or what, what, um, like what prompts the, what, what makes you think, hey, I want to write a, a, a novel that's set in Elizabeth, Elizabethan England or fifth century or fourth century Carthage? Well, I think the first thing is that my imagination needs a kind of what Barbara Tuckman called a distant mirror, um, a kind of distance, a kind of perspective. Um, and maybe that's because I'm, I'm derivative, <laughs> you know, uh, in a way. 
Um, but then, but then we all have to, I mean, I don't know how to create ex nihilo. You know, I, I create from what is around me, from creation. And in that sense, I'm a sort of, I'm a sub-creator. Um, and I, I take comfort in the fact that Shakespeare himself pillaged Hollinshed <laughs> for all the stories that he rewrote for his plays. Um, because, because, you know, it's sort of like my, my youngest son is, um, a ceramic artist and he can't do, he can't do his art without the clay and he didn't make the clay. It is there. Uh, it's part of creation and he throws it on the wheel and his talent and his ability allows him to create something beautiful that is not in nature like a pot or a vase or a uh, a jug and I, I feel a bit like that with with what I do um, I you know I didn't create human nature but I I sort of shape it when I'm you know, as a sub-creator when I'm writing. And then the second part to your question, I think, is, uh, you know, I don't think human nature has changed since, you know, Eve, Eve decided that she was going to go after that apple because she wanted knowledge. Um, and we fell into dualism and instrumentalism. Um, I think... I think human nature is the same. Technology has changed. Uh, but, you know, human nature is the same. In my novels, it's, it's full of persecution for one's beliefs. Um, the beliefs are not secular. They're religious, but they're, they're still held very ardently. Um, there's treachery, um, both... Um, on the on the political political treachery but also personal treachery that's what the second novel's all about um there's rampant materialism um and there there's ideological uh fanaticism religious fanaticism and of course there's the plague they had their own covid-19 um <laughs> and they had to deal with all of that uh, and they're human beings. So, you know, uh, I, I, when I write, and I and I did this, I learned to do this, especially when I was writing um, the Confessions of X. Um, Saint Augustine. I only had Saint Augustine to go on because nothing is known of the concubine. But what I did was I read everything that he wrote and he was very prolific. So it took me four years. And then I searched for the human heart. I, I tried to put my hand on his beating heart rather than look at a diagram <laughs> of the heart. I wanted to feel Augustine's heart and I tried to do that uh, because his heart is our heart 
And that was that was my way in. So Augustine famously had a, a, a concubine, but it, it, she was really his common law wife. Um, the reason they could not marry was because she was of a lower social caste than he was. He was uh, the son of a patrician and um, not a patrician, um, but a landowner and a Roman citizen. And therefore, he, as a son, was a Roman citizen. She, we infer, was not and was a native Carthaginian. Uh, but they fell in love. So the only recourse they had was to cohabit monogamously, which was considered to be, um, it was quite not terribly common, but it was not unknown. Uh, and it was socially acceptable. Um, so Augustine was not promiscuous. He did not run around. He, he and the concubine were uh, together for 17 years, and he only sent her away very reluctantly because his mother, Monica, arranged a marriage for him. And again, this was common at the time, and he bowed to uh, family pressure to um to do this um and he was he was devastated to send her away he describes in the um confessions that his heart bled and that a trail of blood followed her across the mediterranean from italy back to, from milan to carthage um and there's one other thing that we we infer from the confessions about her, and that is that possibly she became, she might have become a Christian uh, and uh, uh, become celibate, like a, a nun. Uh, we know that one of Augustine's sisters did, in fact, take, take a sort of vows. Um, but there's no proof of this. We have no proof of this. And so I chose in the Confessions of X for her to remain pagan. And she certainly would have been pagan uh, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, since so much about her is unknown, including her name, uh, Augustine just referred to her as the one. Now, I understand you actually toyed with the yes. idea of giving her a name at the end of the book, but you eventually decided against that. What uh, how did you arrive at that that decision? I decided that the real knowledge of her personality was so deeply stamped on the story, the book, the and her voice, because it's in the first person, that in a sense her name was irrelevant. Uh, at the end. Um, I did write a version of her name at the end, um, and it was sort of rather cheesily probably going to be the last sentence, uh, and her name was going to be the last word. But, uh, you know, and it took me four years to write, um, so eight years altogether to write The Confessions of X. But I thought, no, her voice speaks from her birth to the to the end and this is who she really is this is as i said about augustine this is her heart 
and we know her heart. And so by knowing her heart, we know her and her name. You know, so I honored her anonymity. And interestingly, um, Peter Brown, who I, I believe is the most preeminent biographer of Augustine living today, um, he says that um, Augustine did not name her because she was probably still living when he wrote the Confessions. Now, Monica was dead, so was Nebridius, but the concubine might have been still living and he wanted to preserve her anonymity because he must have known it would have been, been you know, his confessions would be sensational and they were. Yeah, yeah. I like the choice you made, Suzanne. I thought it was the right choice. I, I'm glad. I, 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 I know. I appreciate. I appreciated that. And I, and did we? I don't think we talked about this, but did in your heart, because your heart, I can imagine, was so much involved with this, and this was such a labor of love. Where was the first intuition for you that this was going to be something that you embarked on? And when I was twelve. Uh, oh my goodness. In religion class, we did the confessions. And I remember asking Sister Bernadette. Um, I was at a convent school in England. Um, well, how come he doesn't name her? And she said, wow. nobody knows she's lost to history. And that phrase, lost to history, just sort of stuck with me since I was 12 years old and um incredible and then I th I thought right well let's find her you know let's give her a voice now you mentioned Shakespeare earlier he mm. makes a young Shakespeare makes an appearance in the course of all treasons as a <laughs> writer how much allegiance do you have to the historical person of William Shakespeare and how much are you willing to um, to give expression to creative license? You know, when you're dealing with someone like um, X uh, or Shakespeare, how do you? What's the formula right. for how much creative license you can take? Well, with X, um, I could take as much creative license as I wanted because nothing was known about her. With Shakespeare. Uh, a lot has been known. In fact, he's probably one of the most written about um, artists, uh, writers in history. Um, and, you know, the last thing I want to do is to, um, and this relates to the actual language I use in the, in the novels, um, which we can come back to. But the last thing I want to do is to be serious and ponderous and treat him like he's the great writer because of course at the time of the novels he's not he's actually his job is valet parking <laughs> at the theater he's parking the horses and presumably shoveling the you know what and um, so he's He's not the Shakespeare that we know. 
you know he's 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 a very young Shakespeare and um, I take a little bit of license in that you know I have him in London uh, in 1585 we think he probably arrived in London in 86 or 87 so I fudge it a little bit and have him come a little bit earlier because I kind of need him there. Mm-hmm. So what I do is, <laughs> I, uh, um, what I, what I, one of the greatest joys of writing this series is mi- having Will misquote his own plays mm-hmm. because he's still working on them. Oh, I love oh, that. Yeah. Works yeah. in oh, progress. I love that. Right. So, so he, you know, and I also have him like plagiarizing, like Nick, like Nick will say something like, all's well that ends well. And, and Will, who's usually drunk, um, says, oh, do you mind if I, do you mind if I borrow that, you know? And Nick's like, oh, if you must, you know? So, so Will is a source of humor. Um, uh, although as the hopefully as the series continues there will be um a sort of darker edge to it um with a series you i've got to i can't as greg says and i don't know whether you can you may have to edit this but he says don't open the raincoat right away meaning i shouldn't put all my cards on the table all at once i've got to i've got to deal them out and so there's room in future novels for a kind of development uh with will and also with christopher (laughs) marlowe now you mentioned creative license and taking liberties um in the course of all treasons you you allow your characters to use some quite modern expressions. So what went into to that decision? Well, if I wrote in the, the language, the actual language of the time, not a single reader would be able to understand it. It would, you know, I've taught Shakespeare for years, uh, 30 years, and Every time my students have been absolutely petrified about Shakespearean language because they find it so impenetrable. And of course, it's to my ear, it's not it. But what we have to remember is, you know, it's a bit like Will's character in the novels. He's young, he's unknown, he's a struggling sort of valet Parker slash playwright. Um, his contemporaries in the 1580s did not regard him as the great William Shakespeare, right? So the thing is that, so so the analogy to the language is that you know nick holt and all the characters live in their present in their contemporary time with their language which is like water which flows without impediment 
and colloquialisms and slang. And so, but to our ear, it is Shakespeare, you know, it's Shakespearean language. <clears throat> so, so I have to somehow perform an act of translation, you know, as if it was in Tolstoy in Russian and I was translating it into English. And I have to honor the colloquial energy and the slang without sacrificing a sense of the historical time period. And that's a juggling act. That's that's a balancing act. And I deliberately use modernism sometimes. Um, but the irony is that, <laughs> you know, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, because um, in the first novel, there's a scene that's set in the modern day Covent Garden. And I call it Convent Garden. C-O-N-V-E-N-T. Mm-hmm. And I had many readers and reviewers who caught me on this and said, oh, it's this terrible typo or she hasn't done her homework. Well, the historical fact is that in Shakespeare's day, it was called Convent Garden, not Covent, because that area of land was um, confiscated by Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries. And it was actually the gardens of a convent. Now, on the wall behind you, um, talking about historical accuracy, you have a map of London. What do you use that map for? Well, I it's a 16th century map of London, and um, so I use it. I I uh, went to Kinko's, had them blow it up, and then I uh, sharpied, black sharpied everything so it's nice and clear. And so I can follow my character, Nick, through the streets so he can get off at old Swan Stairs and he, you know, just by hard by uh, Tower Bridge, um, not yeah, uh, the the bridge, and he can um, he can make his way, you know, through the streets, and I know the names, and I can follow him. I can I can, you know, map it out, and I love doing things like that. So that's what I use it for. I use it for accuracy. Uh, I have one of Oxford because my third novel, which is a work in progress right now, is set in Oxford. And I have a 16th century map of Oxford, so I can do the same thing. Well, now, speaking of um, setting something, say, in the 16th century or 17th century, when I mentioned Elroy earlier, one of his other quirks, because he's a bit of a of a curmudgeon <laughs> about some things. So his novels are set in decades past, and he gets really annoyed when people uh, ask him, are these commentary on modern things? So if he writes right. about the internment of Japanese Americans, is that some commentary on current events? Uh, the rise of fascism in the early 40s, or late 30s, is that a comment on current events? Your your historical novels, are, are, they, are they any kind of commentary on current events? Um, no, not directly. 
but of course I'm a writer who lives today. <laughs> I mean, I think I think Elroy's being a little disingenuous um, because, after all, he does have JFK. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. In some of his books, but I think his point is really that he 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 he's. He's instinctively against the idea that he's writing a sort of allegory, ideological allegory based on today. Um, and and so am I. I mean, I think any fiction writer wants their story to stand on its own two feet and to be complete in and of itself. And so I, I think that that's what he he's getting at but you know with the caveat that sure i i live today but i'm really um an observer of human nature i think all writers are and again as i said before the human heart is remarkably consistent um it's just the clothes and the technology that change um which by the way on a funny note um, you know, sometimes writing in the 16th century, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm like, oh, no, I wish Nick could just pick up the telephone <laughs> or his cell phone and call his mother, you know, and say, are you harboring a priest? If so, you can't because you'll be in the tower you know, or whatever, but no, he's got to send a message and that takes, you know, a few days to get there and a few days to get back. If it's winter, it will take two weeks. And, you know, and I have to do all of these sort of calculations. Uh, you know, how long does it take for a horse to gallop to and Oxford? In, and, in the win and in the winter and, you know, all the- And in the winter with the mud. Yeah. yeah. So neat, because you don't want to miss anything. So that's no, so, a lot of thoughtfulness. So I, I do long for technology sometimes. <laughs> you can do a sci-fi technological. That the next is that what's next? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, now you said you sort of you first heard about the the um you know, this, this person X, the one, when you were, I think, 12 in, in, a, in, a, in a class, did you start writing around that age? Did you start writing young or was this something you picked up uh, a little bit later? Um, I always wanted to be a writer uh, from my earliest memory. Um, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, but at six, I wrote a poem a terrible, terrible poem, a really, really bad poem, but six, it's, and I won a prize for it. Um, in Greater Manchester, I won a poetry prize, but that was because I was so young. Uh, I can recite it if you I was like. going to say I would really like you to. <laughs> Absolutely. I would, that was going to be my next question, please. Okay. Please bear in mind that I was six years old. <laughs> <laughs> my, my dog Bill is very ill, so the doctor gave him a pill. <laughs> the doctor said, with a shake of his head, I'm sorry, but Bill's going to have to stay in bed. 
<laughs> I think it was gripping. No. <laughs> I like it. I laughed. You can tell. I cried. You can... It became a part of me. <laughs> I love it. You can tell that it's based upon a very young child's experience. And and actually, right around that time, I actually got um I was very sick with something. I don't know what it was, scarlet fever or something like that. And so I think that that's based upon, and I didn't have a dog and I always wanted a dog. So I think it's based on my experience. And a sick dog. (laughs) I was sick as a dog. (laughs) I'm sick over my need for a dog. I mean, there's so much subtext we can unpack. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so anyway that's I can't so- believe uh, you're gonna have to edit that out because that's n- I've never gone public with any of my poetry no, ever that's, no that's golden no <laughs> it, it remains <laughs> well, how long did it take you to sort of find your your writer's voice and were there any any other writers who were influences on that well I don't know whether I have a voice. Um, I don't really give it a lot of thought. I I always had students in writing classes saying, how do I find my voice? And I'm like, read (laughs) and don't worry about it. I mean, just write, be truthful, be truthful to human nature. And but the the style then of. say the confessions of x is very very different from the style of um the historical novels um f- for the obvious reason one is set in a in a, a fourth and fifth century carthage and europe rome and milan and the others are set in 16th century uh london um the voice is is what the subject matter dictates Hmm. in a sense i don't really identify it as my voice so for example in the confessions of x the syntax is much more complex is um is full of latinisms um and i'm trying to give the effect of a sort of ancient time uh, whilst also um, uh, making it, you know, so it flows and so it's fully descriptive. So there's a kind of opulence uh, to the language, which is intentional uh, because I'm trying to convey that time. Um, now we get to the 16th century and Shakespeare is incredibly freewheeling Um Upper, K, uh, upper register, rhetorical register, lower rhetorical register, really obscene jokes, very highbrow, you know, philosophical and theological musings. And it's all mixed up together. And that's what I'm trying to produce in my historical fiction of the 16th century. So, so the subject matter dictates voice for me. I don't know whether I, I don't have a Suzanne voice, I don't think. 
A couple of years ago, when we met at the Convivium Conference, I, I really want to thank you for this. Uh, a group of us went out to dinner. I think it was that Saturday night of the conference. And so there's, I don't know, maybe yeah. 12 or 15 of us at a very long table. And I was very fortunate enough to be at the end of the table where you were. And you were so encouraging to me because I was, I told you something very embarrassing about me, which was that I was ghostwriting books for people. And some were nonfiction. There was no embarrassment about that. But some of the <laughs> fiction books, now my close friends know this. I don't think I've ever admitted this to a large group of people, but there we go. Um, I was, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I was ghostwriting uh, some romances, which I had never you even read one before, much yeah. less written one before. But, <laughs> and I was. I was so embarrassed about this because I, I thought, you know, this is, it was just embarrassing, but you were so encouraging, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, that this was basically, I was being paid to practice and that this was, um, this was part of being a writer. So with that in mind, anyone listening who, who has some uh, inkling that they may have a vocation to, to write, what sort of advice do you have for them? Well, my advice is to quote John Gardner, the great, great uh, writing teacher, who said, quote, read, 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 write, write, write. And what he means by that is that you can't, in a sense, you have to, we're sort of coming full circle, you have to be, in a sense, derivative. You have to read other writers' works. You have to feed yourself constantly. But then you have to develop the habit of writing. Write, write, write. Um, you know, sitting down and writing. I mean, and, you know, my my experience has been that the more I write, the more I write. And the less I write, the less I write. Mm. And and it's as simple as that in a way. Um, I mean, I, I admire Virginia Woolf enormously, and Tolstoy, and Sigrid Unset, and Patrick O'Brien, and, and uh, Elmore Leonard. Uh, oh God, I wish I could write dialogue like Elmo Leonard. But I'm not Elmo Leonard and I'm not Virginia Woolf and I'm certainly not Shakespeare and I'm not, I'm just little old me. And, and so I put aside, I try and put aside and I think anyone who's, who's writing should do this, um, put aside the anxiety, the performance anxiety of trying to have a voice or trying to be great or trying to be whatever relevant and simply focus on the other, yeah. the, not the self, but the other, the characters and love them as much as you're able to love them. Uh, even if you don't approve of what they do, you you should still love them because they're other. And I I'm a I feel quite strongly about that. I think I think I think I've gone off topic, but I think today I certainly find on Twitter that a lot of people are writing simply to express the self. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, and they're using writing as a kind of media platform in order to make a sermon about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that fiction, great fiction, good fiction is about that. I think it's about the other and not about the self. Speaking of Twitter, <laughs> I, I, I follow you on Twitter and I recommend I that, everyone, <laughs> that everyone do that. And so I, I took a little screenshot of something here. This was uh, you were replying to Zach at Zach Wright Stuff. And uh, Zach wrote to the Twitter writing community, have you ever written any short stories? If you have, where can they be found? Mm. And you replied, yes, they're hidden on my laptop. (laughs) So my question is, why are they hidden? When will you um, unhide them and let us read them? Oh, my gosh. I've also written poetry and they're even more deeply hidden. They're in a safe (laughs) buried under my house. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm not satisfied with them. They're still I'm still working on them. I have three or four that I work on from time to time. And I have certain poems that I look at and and then rebury and then I I I I don't know maybe it's a question of habit I'm I'm in I I do this sort of the long story and I I'm not quite good enough at condensing I don't know but I'm certainly not um, happy with them as they are so their work's in progress and Maybe one day I'll I'll submit them somewhere and see. Um, yeah, but thanks for asking about that. I have a question. This may be the most important question that I've asked during this interview. Speaking as an American, please explain to us. Can you explain to us? Because you've lived in England and you now live here. Why does the British accent sound so brilliant to Americans? <laughs> Honestly, if you um, drop me in London and I'm in a coffee shop and the barista takes my order and she, you know, pops out with this accent, I'm just going to think she's the most brilliant female I've ever. Why is she working in a coffee shop? Um, why do you think that is? I well. <laughs> And conversely, do Americans just sound like morons to the Brits? <laughs> well, here's the weird thing. Um, you know, I think, I mean, this is how history is still alive. You know, events of 500 years ago, 400 years ago, are still, in a sense, alive and well today. Um, uh, you know, I think Americans feel like um, Britain is the sibling that, you know, was the only one from a blue collar family who made it to Oxford. <laughs> and, that they're still, and, that, and that they're still working in the factory. And that they're really, really proud of the sibling, but a little bit insecure. <laughs> I mean, that that's the best I can do without becoming obnoxiously satirical. Where can people 
uh, like follow you. You're on Twitter. Uh, do you have a website they can? Uh, I do. Follow you uh, it's very easy. www.suzannemwolf.com. Um, I have a Facebook uh, platform, uh, Suzanne M. Wolf, on Facebook, and I'm probably on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Or you can, you can just write a letter does anyone write any letters anymore <laughs> i know yeah i guess lewis I got loads of letters about narnia you know <laughs> suzanne well thank you so much for joining us today this we're going to have to have you back this was just too short thank you so much uh thank you thank you joshua thank you simone and uh um i it, this has been a real pleasure and and uh Thank you. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. You've been listening to the Revolution of Tenderness podcast. If you'd like to join the revolution, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To learn more about upcoming events and projects or to support our work more directly through Patreon or Network for Good, please visit www.revolutionoftenderness.net.